2: There's the external judgment we fear and also the internal judgment we fear about quitting, right? And it, it yeah. reminds me of Liz Truss recently saying, I'm a fighter, not a quitter, like a day before she resigned, right? Um, exactly.
3: So like, I'm a fighter and a quitter. That's how I view myself. Oh, I like that. If you should a
2: t-shirt made. I would buy that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I'm both. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Today, we've got a classic conundrum for you how do you know when to quit something and when to just power through? We get a lot of rhetoric in our culture about gritty people who never quit, the entrepreneurs, the actors, the athletes, the ones that refuse to give up, and then finally emerge triumphant on the medal stand. You might remember legendary gymnast Carrie Strug, who tore two ligaments and then continued on, vaulting to Olympic victory.
1: She hurt herself on the first vault. Probably the last thing she should have done was vault again, but she did, and now she is in
3: a lot of pain. A nine seven one two. She has done it. Carrie Strong has won the gold medal for the United States
2: team. But what about when your entire country's hopes and dreams are not riding on your shoulders? What if you're just, you know, a regular guy running a marathon, like? Stephen Quayle, who accidentally stepped on a loose water bottle eight miles into the London Marathon. He hurt his hip, his calf, and his foot, but he kept going. He didn't quit. He ran 18 more miles through agonizing pain on what turned out to be a broken foot. The media covered him in glory, but was it worth it? Sometimes, no matter what the Nike ads say, you really shouldn't do it especially if you want to run another race one day. Our expert today has learned through hard-earned experience and research that most of us wait way too long to quit the things that need quitting. My name is Annie Duke. I'm a cognitive scientist,
3: a consultant and speaker in the decision-making space, and an author, most recently, of the book Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away.
2: Annie originally got famous for something else. In her previous life, she won more than $4 million in tournament poker. She is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. In other words, this is a woman who knows when to hold them and when to fold them at the poker table. But making those same calculations was much harder in real life, even for Annie. I quit everything
3: too late in my life, too, just like everybody else does. I wasn't finding fulfillment. I wasn't happy for the last few years that I played poker. But how hard is it to walk away from something that you're literally known for? The reason why I quit it too late had a lot to do with issues of identity. Hmm. You know, I was famous. I was on television. You know, it feels in some way like a step back.
2: Hmm.
3: What do I tell people I do for a living anymore?
2: Right.
3: Who am I? Right. Right? And I determined that while I was going to take a step back and I was going to have to build a new type of brand and build a new career, that in terms of the chances that I was going to be happy and feel fulfilled, it wasn't even close.
2: And I assume you still had moments of doubt and fear and uncertainty, right? I mean. Not once I quit, no. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, Which I
3: think is very true for most people. Yeah, like, no, again, because I wasn't happy. So when I did finally quit, I was just happier. You notice when I introduced myself, I didn't call myself a poker player. I played in 2012, that's the last time I played. It's not really part of my identity anymore, but
2: it sure was back then. On today's show, how do you know when to quit and when to persevere? Right after the break, we'll meet our listener, who we're calling Victor. His job at its most basic level is to change the world. And he's debating if he should walk away.
0: If I pay a cost, on the personal front, is that a good trade-off that I'm making in the long run? Am I selling my soul?
2: Don't go anywhere.
4: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure.
1: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Now, you may be wondering, whose job is it to change the world? Well...
0: Hi, my name is Victor. I work in one of the largest humanitarian and development organizations in the world. And I'm uh, in what you call middle management in in this large uh, bureaucratic organization.
2: As you've probably guessed, he's still employed at that humanitarian organization, which is why we're being kind of vague. But here's what we can tell you. Victor's been doing this kind of work for over a decade. He's worked in the public and private sector across the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. And his projects have had a positive impact on many millions of people.
0: This is not just a job for me. I was essentially making, well, four times more money in my private sector work than uh, I've made in the last eight, nine years. I'm in this line of work for the purpose of it, but I I think I'm plateauing in a significant way.
2: You see, where Victor works, like any large organization, there can be many levels of review and things take time, which is frustrating.
0: It's a massive bureaucracy and it's uh, heavily politically influenced. Things pan out a lot more slowly. The challenge ends up being once you are in this line of work, you get placed in a in a very you know narrow lane. I'm not a static person. I get incredibly restless mm-hmm. when I have to remain in one place.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, if I'm not progressing, then I'm going backwards.
2: The simple question I would like to ask is, are you excited to go to work each day?
0: Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I would have loved to give you a simple answer, but... Uh, <laughs> That's fair.
2: That's fair. Yeah, the I I mean, simple answer look, is yeah, if yes. If it were be- easy, you wouldn't have
3: called <laughs> us, right?
0: Like- <laughs>
3: right. Can I ask you Please. a question, Victor? Yes. Um, so you say that you've been thinking about quitting, making a change for three years or so? Uh, yeah. Okay. So generally, when people are thinking about quitting for three years... They're not excited to go to work each day. Mm. Because if they were excited to go to work each day, it wouldn't really cross their mind necessarily to quit. So, you know, I heard things like you feel like you're plateauing, you feel like you're not authorized to make decisions that would have the maximum impact on the people that you're serving, that you're very purpose driven. So what I heard was you're not necessarily finding fulfillment in terms of the purpose that you would like to serve in the job that you're in. And this has been going on for quite a while. Is that a, is that a fair summary? It is. Okay. I also heard you say that you have sort of dipped your toe a little bit into exploring some other options. How, how deep have you gotten into that?
0: Essentially, I'm looking at jobs every single day. Uh, And I have a a set of organizations that I'm looking at where I do believe that I might naturally fit in with the nature of work that they are doing, the organization's vision. But if it's uh, going to be taking two, three steps back in terms of uh, the scope of the role and and the seniority of it, uh, that doesn't excite me. And people close to me, they have been trying to nudge me towards considering that possibility as well. But will I be selling myself short? And how much time will I lose by going, you know, a, a few steps back in that role? And uh, the risk of it might not pan out the way that I'm thinking that it would or it should.
3: So I I love what you just said. I want to sort of go in two directions. I'm going to go in a pretty simple direction first, and I'm going to go in a more complicated direction second, if that's okay. Of course. So uh, the simple direction first is, let's say that you were to quit this job, and you went into the private sector, and you decided it didn't turn out that well. How easy would it be for you to get a job that's very similar to the one that you currently hold?
0: Likely incredibly difficult. If you are in the system, then you are in the system. Mm-hmm. And if you step out, unless you really know someone incredibly senior, are in good graces with the, you know, senior enough people, uh, even then it takes roughly one to two years for for you to get back in into any role
3: you could get back in, you would yes. just you would just have to be where you are for a couple of years.
0: Yes, but okay. in the process, I feel like I will lose a lot of time.
3: But I just, w- I just want you to keep that in mind that it might take you a couple of years to reverse and get back to where you are, but that that is available to you. Yes. I just think it's very important when we're thinking about quitting to understand that for most things that we quit, we're not
2: actually shutting a door. Here's our first insight. Most doors are actually revolving doors. It might take two years to get back into the room, but most decisions are not as permanent as they feel. Most things have some degree of reversibility.
3: The question is how much. Hmm. Your first date is very reversible. It's very easy not to go on another date with that person. Getting married is less reversible. It is reversible, but it's, it's more complicated. So I've heard you talk about, you're worried about losing progress. Yes. Okay. I would like to kind of know if either of these things is true for you. Okay. Very often when people are worried about switching, they'll say things like, I don't want to feel like I wasted my time. Hmm. In the job that i was already in i've put a lot of time into it i know the ropes i know the culture i've been trained for this job and if i walk away won't i have wasted that so that's one one piece i'd like you to ponder so take a second and ponder that and then the other piece i'd like you to ponder and this i'm very confident is is something that you're considering because i've heard you say it already mm-hmm. is when i say well how come you're not leaving your job what i actually heard you say is I'm worried that the new job won't work out. Mm. So if you can think about those two things, let's start with the first one, this feeling of I've put a lot of time into this, a lot of effort, a lot of myself into this job. It feels hard to walk away from that uh, because I feel like maybe I will have wasted that.
0: That I'm not committed to, or you know, fear of loss on that front is minuscule, if at all any. Okay. Because uh, how I've gotten to to wherever I've gotten so far, uh, I've made big bets, essentially gambled my way into bigger and bigger roles.
2: It's interesting that, I mean, we have a, you know, world-class poker player on the line. And now, Victor, you're telling us that you have taken a lot of big bets, right, in the past. And I'm curious about what's made it harder now if it is harder to take big bets is it some is it right. so, sort of a the curse of success in other words back then you didn't have as much to lose didn't feel like i mean it was easier right. to move up as opposed to over or down
0: right because i've made such big bets my peers uh, you know hierarchy wise my peers are 10 to 15 years older than me progression in my type of organization is related to the tenure and seniority and waiting your turn.
2: It, it sounds like a total mismatch, the culture, for what your your own motivations are, right? Like, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to disrupt something from, like, inside the royal family. Like, you just can't disrupt <laughs> the royal family, a you good know what Megan. I mean? Like, <laughs> well,
3: I don't, I don't know. Harry and Meghan did a good job. <laughs>
2: And notice, in order for Harry and Meghan to disrupt the royal family, they ultimately had to quit. They couldn't actually be who they wanted to be from the inside of that particular organization, which is kind of obvious in retrospect. But why is it so hard to see in the moment? First of all, I want to explain a concept called loss aversion.
3: When we're thinking about starting something, uh, making a choice, that we get very focused on the, the bad outcomes that could come from it, separate and apart from whether it's overall better for us or not.
2: Is this sort of like, if you go to a restaurant and there's something exotic on the menu that you're not familiar with, you don't order it because, you know, it's scary? Because what if it doesn't, <laughs> what if it's not good,
3: even if, this is the important thing, even if the thing you normally order at that restaurant is mediocre? Mm-hmm. The devil you know rather than the devil you don't. Yes. And so you're sort of giving up the the amazing and sticking with what you already know mm-hmm. for fear of the losses that might occur. Now, so this is this becomes, obviously, what does this have to do with quitting? Well, when you quit something, you have to start something. So loss aversion is being applied to these things that we start. Now, you might say to yourself, but what about loss aversion with the thing we're already doing? Aren't we worried about the bad outcomes that can come from that? And it turns out, no, not really. We uh, are very tolerant of bad outcomes that come from the status quo, from the thing we're already doing Mm -hmm. in a way that we're not with things we switch to. And this has a little bit to do with something called omission, commission bias. So let me explain what that is. Um, An omission is a failure to act, right? And a commission is an action. Amanda, I, I I doubt you would ever do this, but if you stabbed somebody, that would be <laughs> that would be a commission, right? You would commit an act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I was standing there watching you and I could prevent you from doing that, but I don't, that would be an omission. Now, cognitively, we treat these two things differently. One, we think about it as a decision, and one, we don't. So, so as an example, I mean, people say this all the time. And Victor, I'm sure you can relate to this, like. When people are thinking about quitting their jobs, for example, you'll have a conversation with them. They'll go through all the reasons why maybe they want to quit. You'll see them a few weeks later. You'll say, hey, uh, did you make a decision about that? And they'll say this sentence, "Uh, I'm not ready to make a decision yet. We've heard that before, right? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that, of course, you are ready to make a decision. You just did. You decided to stay in your current position for the time being.
2: You're saying not making a decision is a decision. It is a decision. So, in fact, I would argue that when people
3: say, I'm not ready to make a decision yet, that we shouldn't even accept that as a valid sentence of English, because it doesn't really make any sense. Right? So, Victor, every day that you decide to stay in this job is a day you decide to stay in this job.
2: This bears repeating. Your brain will trick you into thinking that the status quo means you're just sitting tight, biding your time. But in fact, every day we don't change, we're actively choosing to stay.
3: It turns out that loss aversion is only recruited really into commission, into things we perceive to be active decisions, active choices to start something new. And we don't really recruit it into acts of omission sticking with the status quo. This is where we get something called status quo bias, which is a very strong preference for the thing that we're already doing over new things.
2: We are plagued by a ton of biases as humans. That comes up a lot on this show and it's just a hard fact of life. But naming those biases doesn't make them go away. And listening to this, I started wondering if Victor would really hear it. He's a man of strong convictions. And it's not easy to let them go. So Victor, you it sounds like
3: you've been dissatisfied for, it sounds like, about three years. My question to you is, three years ago, if I could have shown you the future and shown you how you would feel in this job for three years, would you have taken that job?
0: Hands down, no.
2: Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. If Victor could go back in time, he would have quit this job before he even started. So why doesn't he quit now? There's something else, something that Victor isn't yet telling us. We'll find out what it is after this break. The other day, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who I haven't seen in a while, and she confessed that she hadn't been listening to this show as much as she once did. And the reason was, she couldn't take all the ads. And I felt so embarrassed, and I was apologizing, and I wished that we didn't need to make money, and I wished that we all had trust funds, and then I remembered, there's a solution. If you join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program, you never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. You also get total access to Slate's website. So there you go. I hope you'll join us if you can. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash howtoplus. Again, that's slate.com slash plus. Thanks. We're back with decision expert Annie Duke and Victor, our listener who's trying to decide if he should quit his job. Before the break, Victor confessed that he never would have taken this job if he'd known where he'd be now, three years later. Which sounds like he made a giant mistake. But Annie doesn't think so. Okay. So
3: you've now spent three years in a job that you would not have taken if you knew what the situation was going to be. You, you don't know a lot when you, when you make that decision, but you're going to find out a whole bunch of things after the fact. Now, we have the intuition that when we find those things out after the fact, and those things are negative signals, they tell us that it's not what we had hoped it would be, that we'll react to it like a rational person and we'll do something different. But we don't. Because there's always that feeling of, I could turn it around, maybe it's gonna get better, or what if I switch to the new thing and it doesn't work out? That is scary.
0: At the time I took the the job, uh, there wasn't any other option, and I was in need at that time. So I had to to take it, but the idea was, it was supposed to be only three months, and uh, I would have parlayed that into something else on my personal front i i ended up uh, getting married uh, had a kid one of the reasons i i've stuck it out so to speak my goal was that i really want to be there for my kid as he grows up and yeah. pandemic through a massive mm-hmm. curveball that at all of us the you know whole planet so yeah. so uh, i wanted to be there for my wife And I definitely wanted to be there for my kid.
2: You know, when I asked you earlier, what has changed? Why don't you take big gambles now all the time? You know, the answer is is now clear. You've had a kid, like your whole life has changed. And so now you're in a stable job. You have benefits, like lots of reasons to (laughs) to like this job. Yes. That's super
3: helpful. So I love the discussion about values, right? Because... Why we stick to things are not necessarily only about our own happiness. We can have other values that we're trying to express, like in your case, stability, right? So that's that's an important factor for any decisions about whether to stick or quit is what is it exactly that we're trying to accomplish. So I love that. So let me let me ask you this. Can you try to make a guess at what the, what the probability is that, that you're happy in that job and want to stay in it in a year's time? So if you were to get one of the types of jobs that you're interested in getting, Mm. what's the probability that you'll be happy in that role?
0: 70%.
3: Okay. So this gives us a little clue here, right? That maybe switching has the higher what we would call expected value for Mm -hmm. you. That, yeah, 30% of the time it's not going to work out. But 70% of the time, it sounds like you will find fulfillment, and that's better than the 30% in your current position. So what I've heard you say a lot is sort of over the last three years, you've kind of been saying, but maybe if I put the time in or if I'm patient, things will get better. That I sort of consider thinking without a deadline.
0: Mm.
3: So do you know how, you know, you'll say, oh, I can start my diet tomorrow, But like the next day also has a tomorrow, and the day after that also has a tomorrow. And all of a sudden, it's just, oh, I can do that tomorrow, and it kind of never happens. Mm. So we do that with these types of decisions as well, that the type of thinking of, well, maybe I should stay, and I can get some training, and things will go better, and there's value to it. This can go on and on. Uh, And in fact, it sounds like it's gone, gone on for three years for you. So the first thing I'd love to do with you is to set a deadline. Mm. So my question for you on the deadline is, how much longer are you okay feeling the way you are about the position that you're in?
0: To be precise, uh, five months and nine days.
3: Five months and nine days. That's perfect. (laughs) Write that down. That's your deadline. Five months and nine days. Why that day? That's a good question.
0: (laughs) So, So... given the middle management that i'm in right now i do have to project that i can stay at a place for a decent bid and and build something so four years uh, would be you know at the end of this five months nine days figure that i said that would make it four, years, four uh, years precise yeah
2: you happen to just know off the top of your head that it's five months and nine days like is there a countdown clock Within your <laughs> eyesight, how did you know that?
0: <laughs> because I, I I know that they I, I, I do my stock check every quarter, how I'm doing, uh, okay. where I'm going and and um, and uh, do I need to calibrate or pivot?
2: I so, see. so so you have kind of created a deadline and you feel like four <laughs> years is a good deadline. yeah but so and but over the past three years, I assume you
3: did not have such a precise deadline.
0: no. No, because I I understood that in the organization that I'm in, things pan out a lot more slowly. So even though I'm not the most patient person on the planet, but I can muster up the patience for the larger goal that I'm working towards. So you
2: were trying to adapt to the culture that you're in, which is like turning a cruise ship. Like it's a it's a slow boat. Is that right?
0: Yeah, but still uh, running against the clock.
2: I wonder if I could just briefly interject. I mean, I'm really thinking over something you said, Annie, about how we we all quit things too late on average and and how why that is. I mean, if I think about my own career, the biggest risk I ever took was quitting a senior writer job at Time magazine, which was a sweet job, really cush job in so many ways. But, you know, I only quit it because I was under pressure. I don't think I ever would have because mm-hmm. the whole media business wasn't and I didn't want to get laid off. Like literally right. it was fear. Not wanting yeah. to have the experience of getting laid off that I decided to preempt the process and and quit and start my own thing, which was the best decision I ever made, hands down. I've never regretted it, but I don't think I would have done it if the media That's business right. had been humming along. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting how you – and I guess it sounds like you're trying to create that pressure with a deadline to help people.
3: So first of all, I mean, there's a general thing about quitting, which is most of us won't do it until it's kind of no longer a choice. Hmm in the sense that we're willing to start things that are pretty uncertain, like take a job, but we're not willing to stop things until we're very, very sure that we don't have a choice but to stop. Hmm. So that's what you're saying about your, your job as a senior writer, is that you would have sort of stayed that in, uh, you know in that forever, but you could see the writing was on the wall, the disruption mm-hmm. was coming, and that forced you really to make that choice. People don't shut their startups down until they have no money and they can't raise a new round. When, you know, obviously, if you could look objectively, they should have stopped
2: earlier. Right, they just drive it into the ground. But part of that is our culture, right? I mean, isn't it our culture to be like, never quit? You know what I mean? Oh, for
3: sure, it's partly our culture, but the funny thing is that our culture is a reflection of the cognitive biases.
2: Ah, I see. Here's our next insight. Our culture is biased against quitting for the same reasons our brains are. If you want to outsmart this machinery, You're going to have to let go of the idea that quitting is inherently weak or lazy. I think that people think that quitters are cowards,
3: but I just want to make something clear. People who quit are completely badass. Mm -hmm. You have to be so courageous. You have to walk away from your identity. You have to walk into the unknown. You have to be willing to say, I don't know how this thing is going to turn out. And when you stick to things, everybody pats you on the back. (laughs) If you look at Uh, The 1996 expedition on Everest that was chronicled in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. The protagonists of that story, the people that we remember and and actually have admiration for is somebody like Rob Hall, who got to the summit at 2 p.m., waited for Doug Hansen to arrive at 4 p.m., and they perished on the mountain. Now... When they went up the mountain, there's something called a turnaround time that they set. And the turnaround time for summit day is 1 p.m. So you're mm-hmm. supposed to, no matter where you are on the mountain, you're supposed to turn around at 1 p.m. And the reason is that there's a lot of danger in descending past them, particularly that you may be descending in darkness. Mm-hmm. It's very dangerous if you stay past 1 p.m. So there are three climbers who are, who are chronicled in that book. Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Taskey, and Luke Kositsky. And At 11.30 a.m., Rob Hall came up to them, and Hutchinson said, things are going pretty slow. You know, the mountain got pretty crowded in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a traffic jam on the mountain. Hey, Rob, things are going pretty slow. How long do you think it's going to be until we get to the summit? And Rob Hall told them three hours and then ran ahead of them. Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kositsky back and says, geez, you know, it's almost 11.30 It seems to me, I'm doing my math, we won't get to the summit until 2.30, even if we start speeding up, maybe till 2 p.m. That's well past the turnaround time. It seems like we ought to turn around. Hmm. And so they do. And nobody remembers their name. Now, they're in the book. Krakauer even says in the book that they were the best decision makers on the mountain that day. Hmm. Rob Hall had the exact same information as them, and he continued on up.
2: Yeah, and I can sympathize, right, with, I mean, you know, you figure you're so close. It's tantalizingly close. close. And so so this is a great analogy. Victor, your turnaround time is five months and nine days. (laughs) That's exactly right. And as that deadline approaches, Victor needs to scan the horizon, looking for signals, something Annie calls kill criteria. What are the things that could be occurring in your job?
3: Either a benchmark that would tell you things are way better. I got you. Or the signals that nothing has changed or maybe even gotten worse. And this is you're going to continue to be in the same state that you've been for the last three years in terms of your own fulfillment and happiness. Hmm. So it's essentially saying, if I see these signals, I will stop. And let me say why we need to do this. Because otherwise, you go three years being in that state. And so that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid another three years of this. So, Victor, I mean, you already know what's going wrong in this job. So Mm -hmm. if you can write down, you know, whether those things and and commit to if those things are still occurring in five months and nine days, that you'll walk away. And alongside that, you can say, here are the things that could occur that would make me decide that things have really significantly changed. And then I'll stay.
0: Right. No, that's a, that's a good framework to, to use to look at the situation, for yeah. sure.
2: So here's the takeaway. Write down a deadline and a list of kill criteria. What signals will tell you to stay or to leave as that day approaches? You're creating an exit ramp, the one your brain is just not inclined to build without a little help.
0: I think in the long run, I do not foresee... Um, me being able to progress at the pace that I'm okay with.
2: You can't can't turn this cruise ship into a speedboat.
0: Exactly. I do not need to keep throwing, you know, good money after bad money.
2: So it sounds Uh, like you have your answer.
3: Yeah.
0: I do. I do.
3: So Victor, five months and nine days.
0: Fingers crossed. (laughs) On a warm
1: summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere. Met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we
3: took turns of staring
2: Thank you to Victor for reaching out to us. Good luck with your decision. And thank you to Annie Duke for all of her great advice. Make sure to check out her new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And if you like this episode, definitely check out a previous one we did with Annie, where she used her poker skills to help a listener decide whether or not to gamble on moving halfway around the world. We'll put a link in the show notes. What about you? Do you have a problem that needs solving? Send us a note at at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. Because let's be honest, we all have friends who really should quit something. You know it and I know it. So send them this show. But don't you quit listening. We'll see you again next week.
3: when fold up.
2: Know when to walk away. And know when to run. How to's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merit Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhig created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.